0: Thank you so much, Scott, and uh, it's a privilege for us to represent the kingdom of God in uh, this culture over the 90 years. And By the way, I haven't been president all 90 years. (laughs) Uh, I just look like it. Um, This uh, school has uh, existed. Over a 90-year period in which there have been massive and rapid changes in culture and perception and even in education. But because our education is founded on the truth of the Word of God, because we see the world the way God sees it, who is the Creator and who is omniscient, knows everything to be exactly the way it is, we have the mind of Christ and we understand what's going on in the world no matter what the shifting sands may bring about. You could argue that unless you have a biblical worldview, you're not really educated at all in those things that are most critical, and what we try to do here in our classes and when we meet in chapel is to continue to sharpen our biblical perspective on things, and uh, Fridays are set aside for a little more personal look at that, and uh, If I can today, I want to take you back into my world as a student for a few minutes and then uh, to a passage of Scripture that answered some profound questions for me. When I was in high school, I had a very close friend named Ralph, and uh, we were uh, athletes together. We played football together. We played basketball together and baseball. I played shortstop. John Stead played second. He played first base. We knew each other, and um, he was a Christian guy. He was, he was a leader in his youth group. His dad um, worked for a Buick dealer down in Santa Monica. I worked for them in the summer. We had a great job repossessing cars. That is a great job for a high school kid. Get to steal cars, and it's okay. Um, but Ralph had a, had a real interest in... Uh, In the the Lord, it appeared, and we used to go around and give our testimony and uh, pass out literature and talk to people about the Lord. And There was a place down in L.A. called Pershing Square. It was kind of where everybody went to make speeches, and we made ours on behalf of Christ. Um, I graduated uh, from high school, and Ralph did the same class. Uh, I went off to uh, further my education and end up in ministry. Ralph went to university and ended up rejecting the Bible, the Lord, and the Gospel and the Christian faith. It was very hard for me to process that. I, I, I couldn't understand it. I went to college, I had a buddy named Don. We were co-captains of the football team. We were on ASB together. His dad was a pastor, my dad was a pastor. We knew each other very well uh, because of the intensity of uh, being together kind of on the inside of the football team. We spent a lot of time together. We did ministry on weekends together. Uh, I graduated from college, went to seminary. He graduated from college, rejected the faith, denied Christ, ended up in prison for some kind of pornography. And I was still struggling with, what is this? What, what is happening here? I went to seminary. I had a good friend in seminary. His name was Dale, and his father was the dean. Um, I graduated from seminary, went into ministry. He graduated from seminary, set up a Buddhist altar in his house, and denied the faith. Three really amazing stories. I needed a theology to frame those up. By the time I came to my final year of seminary, I was so concerned about this that I became curious about Judas Iscariot. How can someone be so involved with the truth? How could someone be 24-7 for three years in the presence of Jesus Christ and betray Him, be a devil, as Jesus called Him, hang Himself, and then go to His own place, which is eternal hell? How can you possibly waste such an opportunity? How can you walk away from the truth? So I was so concerned about this that when it came time to write my dissertation in my final year, I wrote on the subject a character study of Judas Iscariot, trying to get to the bottom of what was going on with this kind of life that apparently shows an interest in Christ, a rather extensive interest, but in the end, the person defects. This has always been a concern to me. When I came to Grace Community Church, it was February of 1969, a long time ago, 48 years I've been there. The first Sunday I was there, just to show you the preoccupation in my mind, the first Sunday I was there, I preached on Matthew 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. I. I was so concerned that there would be people in the church who were like my friends or like Judas, who would be around the truth, make some kind of superficial, tacit affirmation of the truth, but end up in eternal hell. That's not normally the first sermon you preach in your new church. But that has been the driving passion of my heart because Scripture says judgment must begin at the house of God. And Paul said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And the Lord even instituted in the church a regular routine self-examination. It's called communion. You don't take the bread and the cup unless you examine yourself, Paul says. Eventually, I found clarity in understanding this from a particular portion of Scripture, and I want you to turn to it. It's John 15, John 15. I began to think about this passage when I was a student in seminary, and then a beloved professor of mine taught at the Master Seminary for many years before he retired, Dr. Jim Roscup wrote a book on this chapter, Abiding in the Vine, John 15. He saw what I saw. that This is a definitive passage of Scripture that must be understood. Now, just a bit about the setting. It is the night before our Lord's death. The disciples are gathered in the upper room for the final authorized, legitimate Passover, which our Lord then transforms into the memorial of His own death, what we call communion or the Lord's table. The bread that used to mark the bread they ate in leaving Egypt now will mark His body. The cup that used to mark the feast of Passover when the angel of death passed over in Egypt will now speak of His blood, and that is the last authorized Passover and the initiation of the communion service. What stands out in that Amazing night among all that was going on was for the first time there was the exposure of Judas. For the first time, Judas was exposed. He was so good and looked so authentic that when Jesus said, One of you will betray me, they doubted themselves before they doubted Judas. Is it I? 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 Jesus said false believers among true believers can look so good like tares among wheat that you can't even distinguish them. You'll have to wait until the judgment to see God make that distinction. It is, of course, to me the the worst of all realities that someone would be around the truth, hearing the truth, and find that the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And if you continually reject the gospel, the hardening takes place. How are we to understand this? Look at John 15, and let me just read to you down through verse 11. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, He takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is obviously an agricultural analogy that our Lord gives. Here is direct teaching from Jesus on the issue that I've been talking about. This is straight from Him. There are two possibilities. Branches that bear fruit, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8. Branches that bear no fruit, verse 2, verse 6. Branches that bear fruit are pruned by the vine dresser to produce more fruit. Branches that bear no fruit are cut off, discarded, and burned up. This language is very dramatic. This language of the burning of the branches that are fruitless. And it may well be that our Lord was drawing on Ezekiel chapter 15. The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and in verse six, therefore thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I set my face against them, though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I set my face against them, thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord. There's a historic commentary by the Lord Himself on the burning of the false branches of Israel and the inhabitants Of Jerusalem who had rejected God. Now the background. The scene, the dramatic scene with Judas occurred back in chapter 13. This all happens 13, 14, 15, 16 in that upper room in that one night. It's about Judas. Judas is unmasked. And Jesus even said about Judas, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Wow. And what our Lord is saying is, not all who profess, possess. And that's the distinction. Now, a series of questions will help us get a little bit of a better grip on this passage. I don't want to go through all of it verse by verse. That would take a long time, but it's a worthy enterprise for sure. But let's just ask, ask and answer a few questions, okay? Question number one, who bears fruit? Who bears fruit? Answer, branches that are connected to the vine, not cut off, but pruned. Branches that are connected to the vine, not cut off, but pruned. This speaks of true believers. All true Christians are connected to the vine. That's clear every branch in me verse 2 that does not bear fruit that's a superficial connection is taken away every branch that bears fruit he prunes so that it may bear more fruit verse 5 i am the vine you're the branches he who abides in me remains in me and i in him not only are We in Christ, but He in us, He bears much fruit, because apart from Me you can do nothing. And then verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. How do you know a true believer? How do you know a person who really abides? How do you know someone who is permanently connected to the Lord, to the life source? Fruit. Bears fruit. Those who bear fruit, those who are truly connected, go down to verse 16, have been chosen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It's grounded in the great doctrine of sovereign election. I chose you. I appointed you that you would bear fruit and your fruit would remain. What marks a true believer is fruit. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 2. We've been talking a lot about the reformation, uh, sola fide, sola gratia. Listen to the familiar words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. For good works. Again, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Colossians, says, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth." What our Lord is saying here and what Paul is affirming is that if you're a true believer, your life from the very moment of your conversion is bearing fruit. That's the mark. It's not what you say, it's what you produce. Many will say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that, we did the other. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. These words of our Lord are so important and so definitive. When you want to mark out by self-examination the reality of your spiritual condition, don't look for a past event. Look for a present fruitfulness. Don't, don't say, well, I know I'm a believer because I prayed a prayer sometime in the past, or I felt some kind of emotional connection to the Lord. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The kind of fruit an unbeliever bears will bring that person to death. That's before you come to Christ. There's fruit, but it's the fruit that leads to death. Listen to Romans 6, 16, backing up a chapter. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either in sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. So critical. Not just obedience on the outside, but obedience from the heart to that schema, that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. How do you know a true believer? Fruit-bearing. What's another way to describe fruit-bearing? That believer is a slave of righteousness. The passion is not to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the battle is there. But the passion is to produce righteous fruit out of loving obedience to God. This is so basic and so foundational. All true Christians bear fruit that is righteous. Much fruit. Much fruit. You don't have to look a long time to find some shriveled raisin in their life there will be much fruit. And then the Lord will come along and prune the true believer so he bears even more fruit, more fruit. The branches that are burned bear no fruit because they're not genuinely connected to the life of the vine. So let's ask a second question. And we've already sort of hinted at it. Why do they bear fruit? And the answer comes, verse 4, because they abide. Verse 5, because they abide. Verse 6, because they abide. Verse 7, because they abide. Abide in me. Abide in me is the phrase. Verse 4, abide in me. Verse 5, who abides in me. Verse 6, who does not abide in me. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. That's the mutuality of it. They bear fruit because they remain. Now, when we talk about abide, I don't want you to get mystical about that and think that that's some kind of esoteric spiritual experience. All that means is that you remain fully connected to Christ. Your life is manifestly connected to Christ. And we don't always know when someone isn't until they walk away. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They went out from us that it might be made manifest they never were of us. For the true believer... We could say Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We're in union with Christ. It is a living union. It is a spiritual union. Paul talks about that so much, being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And then he turns it over and says, and Christ is in you. Christ is in you by the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you. His presence is... His power courses through the soul of a true believer and it will manifest itself. Now this may seem rather obvious and simple to you, but probably through the years of my life there has been no battle that I have fought at the level I have had to fight this battle, the battle over whether a fruitless branch cut off and burned is or is not a true Christian. There are books written defending the fact that you can be a fruitless Christian, be cut off and burned, and that's referring to somebody who, let's say it the way they say it, is in the kingdom but doesn't inherit the kingdom. Someone who will be in heaven but but in a shack somewhere. In fact, this had reached such epic heights, this view, that... People were saying, and this was very predominant teaching across the whole front of evangelicalism, that you can be a true believer and have no fruit, no love for Christ, no obedience, and you can even be an unbelieving believer. To try to answer that, I I wrote a series of books, The Gospel According to Jesus, followed by The Gospel According to the Apostles, followed by The Gospel According to Paul, and uh, January, The Gospel According to God from Isaiah 53. I, I wrote probably five other books trying to defend this reality that a true believer will manifest that life by fruitfulness. It comes down to the nature of conversion comes down to the nature of salvation. Is it a transformation? Is it a new birth? If you have become a new creation, and old things have passed away, and everything is new, then that is manifestly going to be demonstrated. Our Lord said, "By their fruits, you shall what? Know them." It would seem, perhaps, to you because you you weren't living in the midst of this battle. It would. Perhaps seem obvious to you that if someone is given new life in Christ regenerated by the Holy Spirit converted and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that person and the Bible says that is going to produce fruit in the life that that every believer will be a fruit bearing believer by nature but that's what transformation does that's what new birth does and yet that was denied strongly for years and years. And the people produced by the school that launched that were basically populating every Bible college in America. And uh, when I wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, it it was a bombshell. It was a absolute bombshell. All I was doing was going to places like John 15 and pointing this out. And the furor reached uh, the heavens, I will say. Books were written against what I said in an effort to defend that. I had to write another book against that. I met with all kinds of people. And yet it's so simple in John 15, so basic. Our life is Christ. We're in Christ, joined with Him in His death and resurrection. Christ, who is our life, says the New Testament. He lives in us. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, He's none of His, Romans 8. So if you. If you are His, you have His Spirit in your life. And if the Spirit is in your life, you are a fruit-bearing branch because the very life of God is in your soul and manifesting itself in loving obedience and fruit that is righteous. And in addition to that, uh, you will be pruned. What what does that mean? Uh, The sucker branches will be clipped off and cut off, and that's kind of the disciplines of the spiritual life. Uh, you, you will remember James said, count it all joy when you fall into various what? Trials. Because the testing of your faith produces a perfect work. The life of God is in us, coursing through us, producing fruit. But the Lord wants more fruit. More fruit. He wants our love to yet abound more and more. And so in order to produce more fruit, the Lord purges us and prunes us and takes us through sufferings and trials. After you've suffered a while, Peter said, the Lord make you perfect. It takes the pruning. It takes the the pain. So, true believers are fruit bearers. Why do they bear fruit? Because they connect to the vine, which is God Himself. His life courses through us. Let me ask a third question. How can we be sure if we abide? Let's personalize it, okay? And this was certainly where I was going when I was very young and wondering whether I would be faithful or whether I would follow the pathway of some of my friends. Was I going to be another one of those kind of guys? Was I going to at some point walk away from this? How do I know if I'm really genuinely connected? Come down to verse 9 and 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. What is the manifestation of being a true and abiding fruitful branch? It's love and obedience. We talked about that some time back, loving the Lord. And love that is obedient. That's exactly what he is saying. And you know who the model for that is? Jesus. He said, I've kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. What he is saying is I'm caught up, not only in His love for me, but my love for Him that produces obedience. It comes back down to that, doesn't it? Remember Peter in John 21? So vacillating, so inconsistent. And the Lord says to him, look, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Same question, three times. We talked about that. That's how the Lord disciples a disciple. It's not a long process. It's simply, do you love me? If you love me, you keep my commandments. The result of it is that your life will, verse 11 says, be full of joy, loving, joyful obedience. That's how you know you abide. Listen to chapter 14, the same night, a little earlier in the evening, upper room. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to the other Judas, not Iscariot, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him, make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. It's not that difficult. If you love me, you obey me. If you love me, You keep my word. Now, I want to ask one final question. And this, I think, is kind of the practical part of this whole thing. More could be said. Just exactly what is fruit? What is fruit? What should I be looking at? So let's do a little Bible study together. Turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 8 and 9. You were formerly darkness, that is obvious, you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, as Paul puts it in Colossians. You were formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, what does that mean? For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Here's how simple it is. The fruit that you ought to be looking for is goodness. Uh, Is your passion for goodness, for what is good, noble, elevated, holy, is your passion for what is righteous as opposed to what is unrighteous? And how are you committed to truth? very simple, very direct. The fruit of the light that has dispelled the darkness in the life of a true believer is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, this I pray. That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, epignosis, you know, the deep, true knowledge, and all discernment, and discernment is directly related to knowledge, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, and he goes back Over the same thing He just said, approving the things that are excellent means having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Are you no longer a slave of sin, the words of Romans 6, but a slave of righteousness? The fruit of goodness, righteousness, truth, again, the fruit of righteousness. This, this is not the only place that that is communicated to us in the Scriptures. The fruit of righteousness is a common theme, actually, in Scripture. Listen to James 3.18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's another component. You're a peacemaker. You're a peacemaker. That's fruit. The um, incredibly rich book of Hebrews adds to our understanding a number of things that are fruit, but maybe one to think about. All disciplines, Hebrews twelve eleven, for the moment seem not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields, here we go again, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. A peacemaking, righteous person. That's the fruit that you can look at. That's, that's broad, but that's the point, isn't it? Listen to Colossians 1.10. So you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, true knowledge, good work of all kinds. Romans 15.25-28 says, Generous giving is fruit. Hebrews 13.15 says the praise of our lips is fruit. Romans 1.13, 1 Corinthians 16.15 says that leading someone to Christ is bearing fruit. Now that's all action fruit. That's all action fruit. Behind that, turn for a minute to Galatians 5, verse 22. Behind that action fruit is attitude fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if you belong to Christ, you're no longer dominated by the passions and the desires. You rather are dominated by the attitude fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which produces action fruit, good works, righteousness, truth, peace. Behind every action fruit is an attitude fruit. Being a faithful believer is not hard to spot. Might be hard for us to spot because you can fake action fruit. That's legalism. But you can't fake attitude fruit. And that's why the scripture doesn't say, examine somebody else. It says, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. This is our Lord's word to us. And when you look at your life and you see the evidence of his transforming power, you're not going to see perfection. What you are going to see is direction. And you're going to be like Paul, you're going to say, "Oh, still a lot of sin in my life." And you're going to keep on confessing your sin because that's what true believers do. And you're going to want to come to the Lord's table and be confronted and examine yourself. And you're going to say to yourself what Paul says in Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do, I don't do what I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? It's like you've still got a corpse of your old life strapped to you, and you can't get rid of it. And that's because we have not yet entered into the glorious manifestation of the children of God. We haven't been perfected yet. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for direction. Where does your deepest longing go? Are you playing a game? On the surface and behind the scenes, your deepest longings are for the fulfillment of the lust of your flesh. Or are the deepest longings of your heart to honor God and you, you cry, if, if not silently, even openly, About the sin that's still embattled in you. Look, our Lord said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, and your joy will be made full. If you have been chosen, and you have been given life, and uh, the Lord has appointed that you would go and bear fruit, and your fruit would remain. You have a promise, back to verse 16. Whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he may give to you. So whatever is not in your life what it ought to be, whatever whatever you would want to see in terms of progress and growth and faithfulness, you ask. And if any of you lacks anything, ask. You have the promise of God. If you are constantly asking, that's the evidence that you're a fruit-bearing true believer. Sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, I worry that I'm not a believer. I struggle with sin. And I say, "Um, do you ever talk to the Lord about that? Do you ever say, Lord, I just wish I could get those things out of my life. I ask you to help me. Give me strength. If you do that, you're a living testimony of John fifteen ten. You're doing what true believers do. You're resisting your fallenness and pursuing your fruitfulness. Now, I don't say this to frighten any of you, but to encourage you. To encourage you, if there's any question about your true condition spiritually. Make your faith in Christ the real thing and ask Him to completely transform you. Not only justify you, but transform you, convert you, make you a new creation. But if you're a believer, don't struggle with whether that's a reality. You'll know because you know your desires and you see the fruit. Father, we thank you this morning for the word which is alive and powerful and thank you for our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus, for his straightforward words from John 15, the words out of his own lips to his own disciples in the face of The exposure of Judas, who was a false, lifeless branch cut off and burned. He desires that we bear fruit and that we bear much fruit in order that the Father may be glorified. This isn't for us. Again, the Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. Sola Dea Gloria, to you be the glory, O God. May it be so, as you, by your presence and your power, bear fruit through us. Thank you for this promise and privilege. In our Savior's name.